What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Travis Kling is the founder and CIO at Ikigai Asset Management, an investment firm focused on crypto assets. He previously was a portfolio manager at Point72, where he traded long-short energy equities. In this episode, we cover a lot. We discuss token structures, price movements and outlook, value accrual, the importance of BitMEX and Asian algorithmic market makers, and what needs to change for crypto to have sustainability. This may be one of the best episodes we've ever recorded, so I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate, a security token project in the $200 trillion industry of real estate. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinlist Comply API to create one of the first tokenized real estate funds, and they have a unique buyback and burn model. To learn more, visit blockestate.com. All right, guys, this is going to be an awesome episode. We've got uh, Travis here, who, uh, who's got a, a pretty interesting background and, and just jumped all in in crypto. And uh, you, you probably have some of the wildest ideas of what's going on in the market and kind of some of your strategies and stuff. So, so I think it's going to be fun. So thank you for coming. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm a little under the weather right now. Sorry for the hoarse voice, but uh, we're going to be able to power through it here. So. <laughs> You're going to be just fine. All right. So uh, let's go through background, right? Um, Where'd you grow up? Kind of where'd you go to school, education, and then kind of what'd you do pre-crypto? Yeah. Grew up in Texas and growing up in Texas, I've been out of college for 10 years and nine and a half of that was in energy investing, right? And so... You really strayed really far from Texas. <laughs> got it. Got out of undergrad accounting, master's in finance, got out of school in 08, took the financial crisis in the face, uh, was doing oil and gas M&A for a couple of years out of college in Houston. Went to Magnetar Capital in 2011, doing long short energy equities and non-controlled private equity and debt in the energy space. Um, you know, pretty broad investment mandate, long investment horizon, highly liquid or totally liquid securities. Um, I was there from 2011 through the middle of 15, so I was like the go-go years in oil and gas. So when I joined the energy business, I was managing 250 million at Magnetar. When I left, we were managing 4.6 billion. So had pretty massive AUM growth over that period of time. Left in the middle of 15 and went to 0.72 in New York, Steve Cohen's hedge fund. And uh, I was running a $200 million long short book there. Energy and materials, equities, a little bit of commodity, a little bit of options. And um, uh, probably a good way to just easily segue into crypto here. Why? Why, why, why jump into crypto? Yeah. So like, I'm not a tech guy. I'm yep. not a tech investor and I'm not like a tech person. I'm not an early adopter kind of guy. I'm not like a futurist kind of guy. I've never been like that. So first time I heard about Bitcoin was when Silk Road got shut down, just from a fascination perspective. Like, look at these crazy drug dealers that made this magic internet money to go buy drugs on the internet. That's just wild. Um, I, joke, I joke around with my mom all the time where I'm like, you know, mom, it's a good thing that like, I wasn't into drugs when I was a kid, so I like grew up to be like an upstanding citizen. But on the flip side, if I'd have been into drugs, I would have seen Bitcoin early, and I would have bought that shit in 2012. <laughs> but um, 
It's true. Same thing with video games. When I was growing up, I said the same thing with my mom too. I was like, you know, mom, I'm kind of glad you didn't make, let me play video games when I was a kid, which she didn't. Cause like now I read more than probably like 99% of millennials out there. But then on the flip side, it's like, if you grow up playing video games and like somebody pays a hundred dollars for a magic battle ax, and then you see Bitcoin come along and you're like, this makes all the sense in the world. Right. So, Absolutely. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I, so like I was reading about Silk Road just cause it was crazy. Bitcoin is part of the story. I, I probably read like two hours worth of Bitcoin and about Bitcoin. And my takeaway from that was, um, magic internet money. There's a math problem. The math problem is really, really hard. It controls the supply demand and drug dealers trust it to use it as money. I'm like, that's just nuts. Right. So the Mt. Gox got hacked a few, uh, like not long after. And to me that was like, okay, this is like not something I need to pay attention to. Yep. Cause like, I don't have any way to mitigate or price in the risk. I wake up one morning and somebody stole all my stuff. It's like two strikes. Yeah. And like being the like non sort of like, 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 you know, hardcore computer guy. I'm like, if anybody's going to get their stuff stolen, it's probably me. Right. <laughs> so like, I'm not into this. Didn't think anything of it. Fast forward to the back part of 2016 price starts doing his thing. I started reading more about it early 17 Ethereum and the ICO started going crazy. I started reading more about it. And I basically came back like from July 4th break last, last summer and fell down the proverbial rabbit hole and just like started spending all my time reading about crypto, go to the gym, listen to crypto podcasts, go home, sit on the couch in the dark, read about crypto to the wee hours in the morning, wake up, do it all over again the next day. And like I started stacking up, like, you know, you're doing the self study and like, I really like behavioral economics and, and like um, game theory stuff when I was in grad school. And in grad school, like uh, at a graduate degree in finance, and like they, they hammer like efficient market hypothesis, like when you're in school, and then they like do a little bit on behavioral economics. And that made no sense to me because it was like so obvious that like the world's not like markets aren't efficient at all. And behavioral economics is like really what makes sense because people, because of fear and greed in the context of like economic decisions, humans constantly make mistakes, right? Yep. And behavioral economics is kind of the study of that. And so I did like a lot of self-study in school about that. So then I circled back to crypto and it, you know, it loops in a lot of those, a lot of those aspects. And so I really got sucked into it. I did probably four or 500 hours over a couple month period of time. And I went to senior management out of the blue at the end of September. And I was like, look, this blockchain thing is going to be completely revolutionary. It's a once in a generation type of deal. And I don't want to be an equity long short portfolio manager anymore. I'm going to make a career change. That's awesome. Uh, all right, so let's back up. Uh, you came from what I'll call like Wall Street institutions, right? So whether it was energy trading, kind of pre uh, point seventy two, and then point seventy two, what is that like, right? So when you're inside of these organizations, how do they view technology? How do they view kind of these new asset classes when they kind of pop up, and some of them stay, some of them don't? Just just kind of talk about you know being a you know kind of more traditional institution looking out at you know technology and, and new asset classes. Yeah, so I was kind of buried down in the, um, like I was just doing my oil and gas thing, my energy thing. I did, I did a decent amount of renewables as well, too. So I was like kind of focused in that one lane. Um, so you're not looking at, you're pretty much not looking at anything outside of oil and gas? Ener energy broadly. Energy. Yeah, yeah ener energy broadly was, was like basically my career. And like, you know, I was like 30 years old and knew about as much about oil and gas as like any 30-year-old you, yep. you're going to find, right? Like that was just kind of what I did. And, and um but, but, but working in institutions like that, I, I think one of the, the biggest differences that I think I've definitely taken with me, you know, as I've moved into crypto investing full time is 
I think people that haven't worked at a hedge fund before think that it's like an episode of Billions, <laughs> where it's like Wolf of Wall Street, or it's like Boiler Room, or something like that. And it's it's actually way less sexy than that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's um it's very very process oriented. Yep. And especially especially at point seventy two, they just they just hand, like you you become an an expert in how to build investment frameworks. Yep. It's a machine. Yeah, it's a machine. And like in the same way that Henry Ford used to crank out Model T's, like you can crank out attractive risk adjusted returns on a repeatable basis like that. And simplistically, like the way I think about it is you build this framework and then you put a bunch of processes inside of the framework and then you put a bunch of tools, you build a bunch of tools inside of the processes to help you execute those. And in the same way that Henry Ford used to crank out Model T's, like you can just crank alpha like that. And it's like making sausage. Yep. You take a shitload of data, you stick it in the sausage maker, you turn the gears and it spits out profits and you just do it over and over and over again. And, um, there's, um, it's not, but that just so we're clear, right? Like that's not what people think is happening, what you just said. And then two is that doesn't sound very fun, right? Because, cause it's not human driven in terms of I'm making a gut call left or right. It's much more, we spend a bunch of time building what data sets we're going to do, clean it, structure it, build the machine, start stuffing the data through. There's not a lot of dependence on the individual, uh, on the individual to have intuition or, you know, make mistakes or make kind of the, the grand slam call. Right. Yeah. So, so generally speaking, like humans are like pretty terrible at investing. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And we have, we have so many biases and we make tons of mistakes. We get tired and yeah. Right. And so like the term, Quantum mental got thrown around a lot at point 72, which we've like totally adopted into Ikigai asset management's like it's at the core of, of, of how we've built our investment business. Mm -hmm. um, Explain what that is. Yeah. So it's just the, it's just the intersection of, of fundamental and quantitative investing or like said differently, like harnessing the power of big data to help humans make investment decisions. Yep. And and like simplistically, it's like you ask yourself the question, like, what exactly is it that a human does better than a machine when it comes to investing? And like the punchline is it's like not all that much. Yep. And, and like this war has been waging for over a decade now in traditional asset classes. Absolutely. And like the war is over, dude. <laughs> like the machines have like fundamentally beat the humans when it comes to like traditional asset class investing. Just look at the profitability of a place like Renaissance or Jump Trading or, or D.E. Shaw. Right. And, um, um, and and it's because the machines are not only, quote unquote, smarter, but they have the ability to do much more analysis, more consistently over a long period of time. Never get tired. Yep. Never, don't make bias, no, no biases. Yep. Um, you know, can crunch an incredible amount of data. Then you start layering in like, you know, machine learning type of stuff and this, that, and the other. But, 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 but the interesting thing about that, you know, the quantum mental aspect as you move into crypto is uh, a machine is only as good as, as the, the data that you're feeding it, right? Like the data is like the food for the machine. And, and if, if the, if the investment decisions that, um, that the asset class is presenting are not like quantable, like they're not able to be sort of fed into a data stream format, then a machine's not gonna be able to make very good calls. Yep. And like, in, in my opinion, where we are in, in crypto assets, um, we're not far enough along and the most, the most foundational pieces of this ecosystem haven't been put in place yet. And so because of that, Machines like um, don't do that well in in that that kind of environment, and the data has a lot of noise in it, right? And like if I'm trying to run like a stat arb strategy and like 
a crypto stat arb strategy in like September 2018. And I'm, I'm like, it's a, it's a strategy that was back tested against price action in like the fall of 2017. But like, what the hell does the fall of 2017 have to do with September 2018, right? This is such a drastically different market because we're, we're so early in the, you know, these, we're still having these big seismic shifts in the way the market's acting. But, you well, know. I, th- I think what you're talking about here is so there's two issues. One is the quality of the data or the, or the reliability of the data, right? So there's just not that many market cycles to look at. There's not that many um, kind of great data sources that you have a high level of confidence in. And then the second thing is there's also a lot of investment opportunities that there's no data. So Correct. early stage investing Correct. is really, really hard to quantify. Correct. Right? And, and, and the way that humans do early stage investing is like, so like I can't have a view on Ethereum without having a view on EOS. And I can't really have a view on either two of those things without having a view on Hashgraph. Yep. And when you think about that spectrum of investing, uh, a machine's like not that great at like, like, like humans are really good about taking this really broad set of data and kind of like taking this unrelated thing over here and being like, this kind of helps me think about how this is going to be. And like this other thing over here that's got nothing to do with crypto at all. Kind of like, it's like, oh, I read about the history of the internet and like it helps inform me, inform my decisions about how I think some of this is going to play out. Like machines don't do that that well. Yeah. Right? Multi-dimension uh, like thought process right. and decision making. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so the way, the way that we've built it at Ikigai now, um, We've got one systematic strategy. We've got algorithmic market making that's, that's run by a piece of technology. And everything else is a human at the end of the line pulling a trigger. But, it, but you're pulling the trigger, you know, you're making investment decisions informed by information that, that like, 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 like quantitative type of data and, yep. and, and um, you know, things that look more like quant strategies that help inform the investment decisions that the human makes. Absolutely. So let, let's go back real quick before we jump full in into crypto here. Uh, let's talk about point seventy two, right? Uh, obviously, you can only say so much about it, but but walk us through like what makes that place special and what make what makes that place different from the repeatability of the returns they're able to drive for you know decades. Yeah. Um, culture of excellence, in, incredibly um, high caliber people from top to bottom. Um, a um, stunningly strong operational framework so that as an investment professional, like the, the operations of a hedge fund or the foundation that you're standing on, right? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to build a house on top of that foundation. And like the foundation at point 72 is like the most rock solid slab you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's like, a, I think there's like a thousand employees at that firm, right? And um you know, I don't know what the ratio of like back office to front office is, but it's like two to one, three to one, something like that, right? So you're standing on this rock solid foundation. You've got every every resource imaginable at your fingertips, and and um, um, you just it kind of feels like you're playing pro ball. Mm-hmm. It helps you kind of elevate your game, and yep. um, you know, it's a, it's a great culture and a great environment. Because so. the person next to you or down the hallway is not only world class, but they're here to eat your lunch. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I feel like people sometimes think it's, it's not, it was not like this, like it wasn't like, it wasn't like cutthroat. It wasn't like nobody's trying to like stab somebody else. It was not like that at all. So yep. I can't speak to like old sack, right? Yeah, like, yeah. like early 2000s sack, you know, you hear stories about that, yep. but I joined in the middle of 15. 
a fantastic place Different. to work. Loved it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's great too when you can leave a place like that. Not only say, hey, I learned a bunch, I worked with great people, had great culture, and couldn't speak more highly of it. Yeah. Right? So, so that's awesome. Um, all right. So what was the reaction from you know either people at Point72 or just Wall Street in general when you say, hey, long short equity, that's great. I'm taking the full jump going into crypto. <laughs> are people excited for you? Are people think you're nuts? Are they trying to follow you down the rabbit hole? What, what's going on there? Um, probably a de- I'm sure probably not to my face. I'm sure many, <laughs> many, many people thought I was completely insane. You know, my mom thought I was crazy, right? Mo- moms always moms. think that you're nuts until you prove that you're right. And then you're they gonna told do, you, you're going to do what? <laughs> they, what is this? They believed Bitcoin? in you the whole time. <laughs> for, all I read about is it's for drug dealers. <laughs> right? I'm like, that's not, not true, but you got to look out in the future. Mom. <laughs> my mom's like a small town, Texas mom. I grew up in College Station, Texas. My mom grew up in College Station, Texas. Yep. My mom still lives in College Station, Texas. So like. You know, it's, it's, um, no, no, but, 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 but generally speaking, um, I think people probably thought I was, it, it was, it was early. Yep. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't think it was that much of a risk to be, it didn't feel, it didn't feel risky to me. Mm-hmm. It was there. So like, again, not a tech investor, not a seed stage investor. That, that wasn't my career path. And, um, the only other time that I felt like, I did when I really dove into crypto and started understanding it was um, the first time I took an Uber. In Chicago, when I was living in Chicago, Chicago got Uber super early. It was the second city after San Fran to get Uber. So I think the first time I took an Uber was like, you know, January 2011 or, so, or 2012, something like 18 months after they started or something. Nobody had ever heard of it. I don't remember how I heard of it. Downloaded the app, black car comes and picks me up from my apartment. I go to a store, drops me off the store. I'm standing on the sidewalk, drives away. I'll never forget it. And I remember I was like, that is going to change everything. And I was positive about it, positive about it. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, like, you know, you watch what Uber did, obviously, over the coming years. And I used to joke around, like, the day I took, I took that Uber, I should have just quit Magnetar and walked into Uber's office and been like, yo, I'll push Microsoft Excel for you. Like, I'll do biz dev, whatever. Just sign pay, me up. Pay me in stock, right? Yeah. Would have been a good career move. Um, uh, Beyonce's got a, got a line, pay me in equity. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Right. And I, I would have been probably the, the, the 25th dude, at, you know, whatever at, at Uber. And, and like, that would have been a nice move. Only other time in my life I felt like that was, was when I really understood crypto and I dug yep. into it and I just didn't have any doubt in my mind that this thing was going to completely change everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, specifically I'm super unsure about how that's going to happen. It's just I'm directionally, broadly, uh, highly convicted, as bullish as you can be. And I was like, it felt like just like a great bet to go make in terms of like betting my career on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's this idea of uh, confident in the trend, details to be determined. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like what I tell people is like, there's a non-zero chance that Bitcoin could be Netscape and Ethereum could be Alta Vista. And we haven't seen Google. We haven't seen Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Uber yet. And there's a non-zero chance that Bitcoin go, go be the global, immutable, decentralized store of value in the world reserve currency. And one BTC could be worth 450K or 2 million or 3 million or pick a number and everything in between. Yep. And I'm really not sure about specifically how that's going to play out. And so everything, that, the way we've built Ikigai is to have malleability in, in our mandate and to have a clear look into how this thing is going to play out so that you can make investment decisions accordingly. And it's like, you just go with the strong opinions, weekly held thing, right? Yep. You, 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 you intake as much information as possible. You, you assess that information, you analyze it, 
you make investment decisions based on it, and when something new comes along, you change your mind, dude. You change your mind. How, how do you do that, though, right? So you, you've got conviction on something. You've got the strong opinion, right? You know that it's loosely held, but, but what are the things that uh, you look at that would change your mind, right? Is it data? Is it conversations? Is it gut? Like, what are you looking at that, that allows you to change your mind? Not necessarily on a dime, but, but pretty quickly to you know, go after a different opportunity. It's a great question. Um, it's so many things. Yeah, it's so many things. I mean, I, I, coming from from the world that I came from, I do latch on to any kind of data that I yep. can. It's pretty natural to me. Probably done more work in that than um, certainly not everybody. Like hats off to like a Nick Carter, right? Like the guy's a beast with all that stuff. And and you know, Brendan Bernstein's great. A lot of those guys. But, but I definitely have a tendency to just take that like anything I can quantify. Mm-hmm. Let me try and quantify it. And maybe I can't draw an investment decision from it, but let me at least have it. Let me give me as many tools in my tool shed as I, as I can get, right? And then this space is very big on narrative investing, right? So you you, you kind of track these narratives and start thinking through that, and you and you have to understand how these things are developing. Um, like a year ago, we were talking about Bit, like like oh, we're going to use a Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. Remember that? Oh yeah. That was a year ago, right? Oh, that's what we're going to use Bitcoin for. Okay, got it. And then you just like like as people realize that wasn't going to happen anytime soon, it's like, Oh no, it's digital gold. It's digital gold. Right. Oh no. Austrian economics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get it. Right. And I, and like, and, and I get that. And then it's like, you know, Ethereum, you know, world's computer, right. Oh, it's a decentralized computer, blah, blah, this and the other. Oh, it doesn't scale. Oh shit. What else uh, can we use it oh, for? Oh, oh yeah. But it's going to scale. Cause we got, we got Casper coming. Oh wait, we don't Oh, Casper's not close. Oh, Oh, but no, but we yeah. can say the world is electricity because we're going to go proof of stake. Right, 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 right. But, but, but even from the very beginning, like when I really went down the rabbit hole, just because I, I am a really cautious guy, like as a, like as a investor and as a human, I'm cautious. Like I'd never go skydiving or like I'm not, I'm not about that life whatsoever. And, and as an investor, I'm like, I'm very like cautious in the way that I invest as well too. And so the hundreds of hours that I spent in the beginning before I quit my job, a lot of that time I spent looking at all the problems in this ecosystem. I was like, why is this thing not going to work? Why is it not going to work? Why is it not going to work? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at, you know, proof of work. It, like, this is obviously not going to work on a large scale. And then you look at this proof of stake thing. I'm like, but it's not as secure. But then you start really digging into it. And like a lot of the cryptography, like people have been doing pr- proof of stake as a concept in cryptography has been around since the 90s. Like, it's not a brand new concept. A lot of this cryptography, like directed cyclic graphs, dude, people were doing that work in like the 70s. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you're just trying to weave it into computer science. And so like that gives you a little bit of comfort that that um, um, like you're not just like trying to pull this stuff out of thin air. Well, it's what makes it so interesting to the smartest people in the world. Right. It, it, is it is the true like polymath type environment where you got to have knowledge and some kind of experience or perspective from a whole bunch of different disciplines and you pull them together. And it's not just let me pull, you know, economics, computer science, uh, geopolitics and like the history of money on an even basis. I actually might only pull 10 percent from, you know, economics and 50 percent from psychology and, and 30, whatever. And so how do you build that into a skill set that then not only helps you understand it, but then you can deploy, uh, deploy capital against. Yeah. Right. And, and, and sometimes those two things actually aren't the same. And I think that's part of what draws so many smart people into the space is there's problems that need to be solved and they're not solved yet. They may never get solved or they may get solved tomorrow. Right. And it's, it's the puzzle of all puzzles, right? Cause there are, there are so many aspects to it. And, and, um, yeah, it's why, I mean, it gives you so much to chew on, right? And, um, if you figure it out, obviously from an economic incentive perspective, right? Like if you, 
if you get it right, like you're gonna get you, win, paid, you get, win the game. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna get paid on that. And so, um, and, and and like. I, you know, not to get like cheesy, but like the societal aspect of it as well too, mm-hmm. um, was super important to me. Cause like, like Ikigai. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's talk about what, what you're doing today and, and kind of where the name came from. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ikigai ancient Japanese concept that means reason for being super old where it's like 1200 year old where there's books and stuff written about it. If you Google Ikigai, it's, um, there, you see this like Venn diagram and the Venn diagrams, like what you good, what you're good at, um, what you like to do, what you deserve to be paid for and what the world needs. And I just came across a concept randomly like a year ago and I really liked it. And like, to be honest with you is I had a career in hedge fund investing. Right. And I was, uh, I liked doing it. I was pretty good at it. I made a fine living doing it, but like the world doesn't need another hedge fund manager. Right. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't get another hedge fund manager. The world's going to be just fine. And, uh, some people would argue we could lose a couple and be okay and be just fine. <laughs> right. But like, but the world needs this technology. And, and, and the technology is a platform to go affect societal change for the good. And like, I'm much more of a realist than I am. Like, you know, you run across a lot of like techno utopians, you know, the type of person in this space, a lot of, of those dudes. Right. Um, but, 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 um, I'm much more of a realist, but what I saw was, um, society starting to, to recoil from these monopolistic abuses of power at various different levels. And you start seeing these trends, right? It's like Brexit. Donald Trump getting into office, um, you know, hyperinflation, NSA, NSA stuff like um, uh, uh, Facebook election ads. Right. Um, Black Lives Matter, uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, Cambridge Analytica. Like there's a common theme that runs across all that. And you just have to look at it at all the surveys of millennials. Millennials are the generation that have a deep distrust of governments large financial institutions, large technology companies, right? Like it's like Facebook takes your data and they do shitty stuff with it. Google takes your data and like they do, they like don't keep it safe, right? And like Apple like takes your data and like, you know, like makes these other products and they hook you in and they like box other people out. So it's like, it's pretty monopolistic the way they do stuff and like stuff gets hacked all into Equifax, right? Like what? I mean, look, if if you are under the age of 40, you might as well just, admit or, or give in to the idea that your data, your personal financial data and your and your actual personal data is floating around on the internet somewhere and if somebody's got money they can buy it. Facts. Facts. You can get like you can get like five hundred credit card numbers for like five dollars on the internet, like on like whatever black market stuff. But but you know you, you know you look at you look at um you look at just millennials in general and um the same way that, that polls are showing you how much that, that distrust is, the, the older you are, the less you think Bitcoin makes sense, the more you think gold makes sense. The younger you are, the more you think Bitcoin makes sense, the less you think gold makes sense. So you fast forward a couple decades from now, and millennial, like we're all like, you know, 50, and like, what do you, like, what do you really think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, we go and talk to these institutional investors all the time, right? And I always tell them, I said, listen, if you, if you don't take anything else from this conversation, understand that people under the age of 35 have an amount of their net worth in this asset class that would make you dis- just absolutely disgusted, yep. right? I'm talking mid-double digits in many cases yep. where we're talking, you know, 35, 40, 50, sometimes even 70, 80% of yep. their net worth, their total net worth is tied up in digital assets. Now, some of it is they put a little bit in and it exploded in value and so so it grew. But I also know a lot of people were taking, you know, 50, 60, 70% of their salary yep. 
and they're they're still buying. Yep. Right. And, and they just it's a store value. It's a medium of exchange. It's the new stocks. The you know the commodities. It the makes bonds. sense. It, it makes sense. It just resonates. The and problems it, are going to get solved. The hiccups with the industry are solvable hiccups. Absolutely. And right? and, and also it's the opportunity cost. Right. So you know the, yep. you know if you think of your if you're an institution you got to hit your six to eight percent you know kind of actuary assumed rate of return in order to pay out the millions of people who are depending on you if you're an endowment for education or you're a pension for retirements all this stuff you're not hitting that today in most cases, right? Well, if you can't hit six to 8%, where do you go? Yeah. Uncorrelated digital assets is, is one area to look. And so millennials are saying, even if I could hit six to 8% in the public markets, debt, real estate, all stuff, that's not interesting to me. I can take a bunch of risk. I'm young. So where do they go? They go for the six, 700, 800% annualized returns that they just saw. And so they're going to continue to do that, yep. right? And, and so it's all of these forces at work that um, drive a huge amount of capital from a very specific demographic into digital assets. Everyone else is going to fall. They have to fall, yeah. right? It may take longer, but it's going to happen. Yeah, we, internally, we talk about it. Um, it's like musical chairs and um, sovereigns. They have their game of musical chairs that they're playing and like institutional investors, right? Like endowments, um, state, state pension funds, state plans, things like that. It's like a game of musical chairs and like Bitcoin just stopped music, right? Or they're in the, Bitcoin's in the process of stopping the music and like nobody's really sitting down yet. You hear whispers, right? Like there's some people in the Middle East buying like a lot of Bitcoin, right? You hear that, right? Like there's like, you hear whispers about stuff from a sovereign perspective. Like we know there's definitely some like large financial institutions that are definitely sniffing around and like, you know, maybe got a little exposure here, a little exposure there. And it's like, you know, may, may, maybe something crazy happens, like like Italy gets kicked out of the EU, right? Or And like uh, the European Union starts looking like it's like questionable, which is like not, not a- There's a non-zero chance. It's a totally non-zero chance over the next couple of years, totally non-zero chance. And then all of a sudden it's like, you hear that like the Swiss sovereign wealth fund, like it's got their long some Bitcoin, right? So now now Switzerland just sat down, right? And there and there's not that many chairs, right? You got, 20, you got 21 million Bitcoin, a couple million of them are lost. Right. And, and so now only, people only like, 17 million have been mined. Right. Yeah. Game on. And, 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 and all of a sudden it starts looking like um, it's, it's what we were talking about. It's irresponsible to not be involved and the reflexivity and the price action. When, when some of that stuff starts catching on the potential, I mean, it's going to be breathtaking. Yep. The way that, if, if some of that stuff. Plays look, out. look we, we actively tell these institutions, right. It's the best performing asset class for the last five years. If you add 1% of digital asset exposure into a global 60-40 portfolio, the returns go up by you know anywhere between 100 to 300 basis points, depending when it was, and the uh, standard deviation of risk stays about the same, yeah. and you get a double-digit increase in the sharp ratio. Yep. The second that you start looking at that, where else can you get that? Yep. Right? And so it's not about how high can it go. It's actually about managing risk of your overall portfolio, and if you have zero exposure to the asset class, you have to immediately immediately get off zero. Yep. Right. And we literally, I mean, you, you can imagine talking to a, you know, 50, 60 year old CIO who manages billions of dollars and telling them get off zero. Right. That's the message right now. And I think to your point, there's people who are starting to do it, but when, when it actually kind of the, the dam burst, right. Watch out. Right. Totally. Right. Um, all right. So, so let's talk about some of the things that are happening kind of pre before that happening. Right. So right now um, I know that you're uh, you, you've got some really interesting thoughts around like BitMEX and, and some of these uh, markets that are already here that people are already using today. Like, what do you think is so interesting about those types of companies and markets that are being built? Yeah. So so, so earlier you're talking about like, how do I change my mind? I mean, I mean, part of it is is you create all these processes around intaking every aspect of information that you can. 
um, about the the development of the space and, and assessing that information and putting it into a you know a broader kind of mosaic framework to help it make investment decisions. And a lot of that is just thinking about market structure. And and year to date, you know the two the two eight hundred pound gorillas that have shown up from a market structure perspective year to date is is BitMEX and and the Asian algorithmic market maker. And um, let's go BitMEX first. So explain what is BitMEX? Why why do you think it's the gorilla? Yeah, or yeah. one of the gorillas? Yeah. So so BitMEX is a um, non licensed exchange uh, or un- unregulated unregulated exchange. They trade a, a synthetic. Uh, Bitcoin future, um, you fund only in Bitcoin. Uh, you can get up to 100x leverage, long or short, on Bitcoin. Uh, it's been around for a few years. wasn't that popular, especially in 2017 when everybody was going shitcoin hunting on Cryptopia and KuCoin and Binance. But as the market's woken up year to date and realized that all that stuff's worth zero, BitMEX has become, um, you know. I mean, I think they've got like a like two or three times more volume than like the number two exchange, and um, you can get massive leverage on it. So okay, so I really want to talk about this leverage thing because I don't think a lot of people understand one what is leverage yep. and how do people use leverage in a positive manner, right? And then what can that do to the market on the negative side as well? Yeah, yeah. So so specifically in the context of Bitmex, like if I put if I put um, one Bitcoin long with a hundred x leverage. That means I'm getting returns like I'm long 100 Bitcoin. So you, you take out of your wallet or your portfolio, you mm-hmm. take one Bitcoin, which is whatever, six $7,000 today, mm-hmm. and you, you put it down and say, I'm going long. I, I think it's going to continue to go up in value is the bet, mm-hmm. right? But you're getting credit for actually having put down 100 Bitcoins right. and saying these 100 are going to go up. Why does BitMEX do that? Because humans love to gamble. All right. Yeah. And, and so what is the economic benefit to you? when you put this 100x leverage on and what is the potential negative side effect? Right, so, so if, you, if the price goes up. If you're right. Right, then you're generating returns like you're long 100 Bitcoin, only putting up one Bitcoin worth of risk. However. Great risk return profile. However, specifically on like the, 100, the 100x example, the, the way the margin works is it doesn't have, the way normal margin works, like in tradition, like in the real world, it's a function of, of how much money you have in your account. And as long as you have money in your account, you continue to make like at the end of day, you make, there's margin calls and you, yep. you like make it up if you're losing money every day to like kind of stay even in your account. So you, you can basically pay down the margin. You can keep your losses, more collateral. Right. And yeah. you can stay in the position forever. Yep. The way it works at BitMEX is um, uh, the, the leverage is only, uh, specific to that individual trade. So if you have 100x leverage on, you lose 1%, you automatically get stopped out and you, and you lose the one Bitcoin that you put up. Or if you're long 25%, you know, if you're long um, um, like 25x leverage, then you get stopped out at like, you know, 375 bips, whatever the, num- the number is, right? Down, and and so great deal for BitMEX. Oh yeah, right. Arthur Hayes, man. <laughs> I mean, just just absolute savage, right? And, and just printing money right one, now. One of the most savage guys in the space. Period. Yep. Complete, complete, macho man, Randy Savage. Yeah. I, I, look, I, and we talked about it before. Uh, I mean, the part that I love is not only that he's created these products and, and he's got them out there and people are using them, but but he is out pounding the table saying we have them, right? So he's yeah. on Twitter and he's saying, look, you 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 know, good traders go both ways, yeah. right? Up or down. Let's see what you got. Yeah, and and he in, he introduced, um, you know, so he started rolling out a new um, 
new instruments, right? So mm-hmm. you got directional uh, ETH exposure. You can get fi- up to 50x leverage on Ethereum, and you get paid in Bitcoin. You don't get paid in Ethereum. If you, if you make money on the short side, you get paid in Bitcoin. So you're shorting Ethereum, making money in Bitcoin. Same thing. Um, Which most of the shorts love. Yeah, of course, right? right? Um, you, can, you can now go uh, long short on Ripple, Tron, Bitcoin Cash, EOS, um, Cardano, and um, with varying uh, up to 20x leverage on some of them, 50x on, on others. Um, and, and quantitatively, a listing on BitMEX has been the kiss of death year to date. So, so I was just going to ask you, what do you think this is doing to the market? Well, well, well what, what it's done is it has given a venue to now have true price discovery, mm-hmm. two, two-way price discovery. Because previously you could only go long. Well, just, you could short on BitMEX, but you didn't have enough liquidity. And now there's there's a ton of liquidity on on BitMEX right now, so you can really express it. Except, which I'm glad you brought this up, it's the worst kind of liquidity. Why? Because, because it's it's liquidity. Except there's extremely sophisticated quantitative investors, Wall Street guys, like 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 your old world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like not specifically point seventy two, but like those types of people, like those types of folks, right? Like the best in the business, and from a quantitative perspective, um, you know. I don't want to name names. One of them rhymes with lump. The other one rhymes with B.E. Raw. <laughs> <laughs> so, these guys, so these guys are doing liquidity modeling and on, on BitMEX. And the way that works is they call the network three times a second. And um, uh, by calling the network three times a second, they're pulling down very minute volume data. And then I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think how they do it is they can see where the price gets executed relative to the specific volume at that moment relative to the bid ask. I think they can back into the amount of leverage that was put on for that specific trade at that specific moment, three times a second. Wow. And then they're able to then map out where the stops are. And then you can map this out, and then they see where a bunch of stops start getting stacked up on top of each other. And foot, uh, on the, foot on the gas. Right. And then it's just like a Jenga game, except except these really sophisticated quants are the only ones that can see the Jenga tower. Everybody else just thinks it's like, oh, we're just there's no there's no blocks being pulled out yet. But they see the whole thing. And then when they see all these stops that are that are could potentially get pushed over, then all they got to do is go and give the Jenga pile a little nudge. And then you run through all those stops. Or you, and, and, and so if you just look at the price action over the last handful of months, like it's so obvious that like that's the market structure that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's when you're seeing it. If you're a retail investor, you're seeing a immediate within seconds, 400 price jump, right? Right. Yeah, it, yeah, you're yeah, basically, you're yeah. tipping it over. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And they, and everybody gets stopped out. And then also BitMEX, BitMEX works just fine until you really need it to work. And then it doesn't work anymore because mm-hmm. it gets shut down because it gets, there's too many people trying to trade and then all these stops get run out. And then the really smart guys take all the really, the, the retail guys money. So that's it. That's, that's terrible for the long-term health of the ecosystem, mm-hmm. which is why I wanted to talk about it today. Because it's really like, like you know those vines that wrap around the tree and they kill the tree if you let the vines sit there long enough? Yep. Like that's like exactly what like that type of stuff is happening right now. And so it's, it's really to the detriment of the long-term health of the ecosystem. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that it's, it's untenable in the medium term and something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but, but is it more so like a regulatory type uh, solution or is it just that more people come into the space that are smart and then they all kind of start commoditizing some of this and, and you get some relief? Well, the way that I think about it is it, like if the quant is the bully 
and and like the retail guys, like like the small kid in school, like every day the small kid's like walking into school and getting punched in the gut by the bully, and he gets his lunch money stolen. After a while, like you just stop going that way, right? And like that's exactly what's gonna happen. Like they're just gonna clear out all all the retail money. It's just gonna be like quant on quant crime, mm -hmm. which I think it's like, oh, this is all happening in traditional asset classes. Quant on quant crime's been happening for like a decade now in traditional asset classes, and so. Um, so, so, so that's a problem. And then the other thing I want to talk about is, is Asian algorithmic market making, which is like the other 800 pound gorilla, which is like also the vine that's wrapped around the tree. That's like going to kill the tree if you let it keep going. All right. So, so let's, let's start with just what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, I don't mind like, let's go, let's get the names. Uh, let's see here. This one rhymes with, uh, left free he. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so so we, there, there's a couple of them. There's, right? about, there's about ten big boys. Yep, there's about ten big boys, and they don't sit in the United States. Yep, they're not United States citizens. Their businesses aren't domiciled in the United States, so they're out of the long arm of the reach, the, the long reach of, of U.S. regulators. They've got which, some protections, which which means which means that they you really can do whatever you want to, and like it's not illegal, and like we call it. Can I cuss on this? Yeah, of course. It's called we call it fuckery. All right, because it's not illegal. It's it's fuckery. And, and, um, and, and fuckery is a combination of manipulation it's, it, and it's, it's like morally, it's like morally it's stuff that you just wouldn't do. Right. right. And like morals is a cultural thing. Yep. So like, I'm not trying to like, look, yeah, they yeah. got a different set of cultural values in me. And like, I mean, if I was a Chinese guy that like lived in China my whole life and like, I could start printing money like that. Like I might do it too. I don't know. But like. Um, it could, you could view it as actually, Hey, I'm getting back at you. You guys have been messing with us for, you know, decades, whatever. Right. Yep. Like, yeah, but, but, but like the, the, that's, what's happening. And so like, it's, it's one of the main reasons why the, the Asian ICO market right now, as we sit here today has decoupled so much from the U S ICO market. U S ICO market is like almost ground to a halt. Right. Yep. You got like a, a small percentage of deals that you had earlier this year. Well, well, it's almost like the, the bully, uh, you know, student example you gave earlier. It's like the teacher showed up in the hallway. Right. right. It's like, hey, right. hey, knock off, knock off all the fuckery. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. No, that's a great point. That's what was happening in the U.S. ICO market. So now you've got like like Asian ICO, XYZ token. They go raise like $40 million in their ICO. They take like 10% of the tokens and they just give them to the algorithm and market maker. And not only do they give it to them, they also give them like 6 million bucks in ETH too. And then they get a coin listed on an exchange and then they start wash trading. Mm -hmm. They start wash trading back and forth with each other. All right. So uh, mo most people aren't going to know what wash trading is, right? Uh, let's start from kind of the beginning of uh, if you're one of these tokens, you did your ICO, when you get listed on an exchange, you need liquidity, right? Yep. So uh, there's a couple of ways to get liquidity, on, you know, in your token or kind of the trading volume on a daily basis. One of them is wash trading. What is that? Yeah. So that's you have a, you have multiple accounts set up on the same exchange and you're buying and selling to yourself from yourself. Mm -hmm. So you own all the exchanges or all the accounts on the exchange that are doing the high volume trading for the day. Yeah. 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 That's right. You're just executing trades amongst yourself with multiple multiple accounts. Yep. And, and that gives the illusion that of there's volume. There's real buying and selling that's happening. And by the way, they're just driving price like you're literally just like manipulating price to get to a certain level. And these guys will contractually guarantee a volume and contractually guarantee a market price like like in writing again it's not illegal over there so yep. it's like it's fine they get paid hella money to do to do this and then even crazier than that they'll get in like the they use like wechat over there we use telegram right everybody's talking about it so they're in the wechat groups and they're listening to all the technical indicators like the ta guys they're talking about the different um indicators that get that are like like in this particular crypto 
and they listen to whatever people are talking about and then they just start painting a specific technical indicator. So it's like, oh, here's a, oh, it's a bull flag. Oh, we got a bull flag coming up. Oh, cool. oh, we got a, you know, whatever, a rising wedge, like this, that, and the other. I, I mean, but it really is a, uh, it's a psych, it's psychological warfare against retail investors to yeah, some degree. Yeah, it's terrible. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is the vine around the tree that will poison the tree. It is to the detriment of the health of this ecosystem as a whole. Mm-hmm. Now, the scary thing is that the exchanges are in on it. CZ's in on it. Right. They're, okay. all, they're in on it because in a bear market, they got to have these guys. They need the, the volume. They, they, they got to have them. And they if 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 if, uh, if uh, uh, you know, X, Y, Z token gets listed and they don't have an Asian uh, they don't have an Asian algorithmic market maker on the back end, then the token, there's a good chance it's going to crash as soon as it gets listed because the private presale investors that got into 80, 95 percent discount. Dumping. They're dumping immediately. But the crazy thing is, is, you know, you're given 10 percent of the tokens away and you're given like, you know, whatever 10% of the raise away to catch the volume on the back end. You see how like not good that is. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and how untenable that is and like not healthy for the overall, like long-term. Well, and it also, uh, it is serving the number one use case for crypto today, which is speculation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's literally what is happening yeah. here is they're, they're taking tokens and they're creating new speculation tools yeah. or products and people are using them yeah. right for speculation, yeah. but not for the adoption that actually drives long term, long term sustainability. Right. And, 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 the, and the individuals or the entities most likely to make a profit from from that situation are the ones that are the most sophisticated, mm-hmm. the ones most likely to lose money. It just like like the more retailish you are, the more you're guaranteed to lose money in this process, which is just not good. I'm, I am hoping, and I don't know, maybe CZ, you're going to hear this. We'll, we'll tweet, we'll tweet it to him. Does he like you? Are you homies with CZ? He, he, uh, he, he retweets me a lot. We, we've never uh, really talked to in depth. Right, I, but, uh, I hope he hears this. All right. When we get out of this bear market, which I don't know when it's going to be, but like you got to cut the fuckery, man. Like you have to self-regulate. You have to self-regulate and you got it. You got it. This wash trading, the, the price manipulation, painting TA signals, like, like you can't have that. And here's the one thing though, that, that I think is really interesting. So the one, the one thing that I'll say to defend some of them, right? Cause I think that, uh, you're probably right in that a lot of this is going on across exchanges, right? I, I think that it's just what they believe, whether they're right or not needs to happen for the volume to be there, bear market, all that kind of stuff. Right. So let's just put all that in a box and, and set it aside for example, uh, or for a second. Uh, the one thing though, that I think encourages me that that won't be the long-term strategy is all the tokenized security stuff. Right, so you start to see a bunch of these guys saying, you know what? Look, the uh, the utility token stuff, the speculation, it's going to keep happening. We're making a bunch of money today, but long term, regulators are going to step in in different jurisdictions. They're going to draw the rules, and we're going to have to play by the rules. And so they say, oh, tokenized securities. I don't know, right? And I could be wrong on this. I don't know if they're going to be able to do a lot of that wash trading, et cetera, in the highly regulated tokenized securities world like they can do it now. Maybe right. they can get away with a little bit of it, but you know that gives me hope that there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel and, and, and uh, tokenized securities will actually make this a much more kind of traditional um, market. I agree with that. Yeah, right. yeah, and none of that stuff can happen. Like you can't wash trade on, on GDAX, right? Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. wash trade on Bitfinex um, and they've got all kinds of technology to catch you. Yep. And like, if you do just a little bit of it, they will kick you off for sure. So like Ikigai, so we have an algorithmic market making strategy that makes, you know, makes money off buy, buy and sell spreads and very liquid tokens. And we also provide U.S. regulatorily compliant algorithmic market making as a service to tokens. So if you want to do it like in a regulatorily compliant way and it's just buy and sell, 
It's just a 24, right? We're the 7-Eleven. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nice piece of technology that's sitting there. And if anybody wants to come by or come sell, we've got a piece of technology that can easily execute those types of things. And, you know, you're not manipulating price. You're not doing wash trading. You're obviously not painting any kind of like TA signals or anything like that. Yep. Because you do need a liquidity provider. I mean, look at traditional asset classes. They have. I mean, it's an, it's an enormous business. Enorm liquidity providers is like a multi-billion dollar, many, many, many billion dollar a year business. And so um, that's not going to go away. You just need to do it in a manner that doesn't doesn't bend over the retail investor, right? Absolutely. No, yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. Before we move on, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate, a new security token project in the $200 trillion real estate market. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinless Comply API to create one of the world's first tokenized real estate funds. Tokenization is the process of creating a digital token that represents ownership in a real-world asset. You've heard me say it before, but a clear use case for this is real estate. Block Estate aims to bring increased liquidity to this massive market. We're really, really thankful for, to the Block Estate team for their support, so we'd appreciate if you checked out their website at blockestate.com to learn more. If you're intrigued by what they're doing, feel free to reach out to them or give them a tweet on Twitter. Thanks so much. Um, all right, so, so let's switch for a second and talk about uh, the valuation of digital assets, right? You know, today I think that there's probably much more information, much more uh, kind of uh, theory around how do we actually use data and, and fundamentals to value individual assets. Well, how are you guys thinking about this? Where do you think we are uh, in terms of the, the maturation of, you know, valuation methodology for digital assets? Yes, yeah, so this, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Like I, I pretty much stop doing anything other than valuing stuff when I was like 19 years old. Like first upper <laughs> level finance class, like my junior year in college, like it's pretty much all I've done since then. Done it in a bunch of different asset classes, done it in super liquid stuff, done it in completely illiquid stuff, um, up and down the capital structure. And so like when I came into this space, it was incredible to me to see how early it was in thinking about like, if I buy a crypto today, Am I paying a lot or a little for it? If I buy Bitcoin today, am I paying a lot or a little? Yep. Well, the price is $6,500. Well, that doesn't tell you if I'm paying a lot or a little for it, right? It's just a price. When I think about, like, back to my old career path, like, if, I'm, if I want to buy a share of ExxonMobil today, am I paying a lot or a little for a share of ExxonMobil? Well, I've got, like, 30 different tools in the tool shed to help me understand whether or not. And, and, the, and the way that you're coming to that conclusion, traditional markets or in the digital asset world, is what is the price? And what is the value of the actual asset? And is it above or below the value of the asset, yeah. the price I'm paying? Yeah. Price is not value. Yep. Yeah. Price is what you can buy it for today. But, it, but, but you need some sort of relative valuation framework to think about, is this a lot? Is this a, a, am I paying a lot you know, relative to historical? Am I paying a lot relative to other assets? So you start needing to have this like... Uh, you know, a homogenized framework to start thinking about these kinds of things. And in traditional asset classes, there's all sorts of stuff, right? I got like assets, you know, metrics based on assets and revenues and cash flows and earnings and growth. And like, you know, if I want to buy a share of ExxonMobil, like, you know, I can take like my oil price assumption, plug it into my model. There's like multi-factor models where, where you start breaking apart a stock and like, it's like, you know, you know, this stock is like a function of like, it's a momentum stock or a value stock or it has high leverage or like, you know, there's all kinds of different valuation metrics. And then like, I stepped in this asset class and, and I've read like, you know, probably 80, 90% of the things that have been written about valuation in crypto period. Like I've read the vast majority of it. 
nothing has been written about, about crypto asset valuation that's older than like 18 months old, which yep. is crazy, right? Because like Benjamin Graham wrote The Intelligent Investor in like 1949 or something, still one of the most like important books on equities investing period. And when people look at PE ratios for the S&P 500, you look at them like 60, 70 years back in time, and you're telling me nobody's written anything that's older than 18 months old, talking about crypto asset valuation. So I, so I, so I started being like, well, well like, how do we think about, about value in, in this asset class? Do you think it's important to have the traditional market valuation understanding going into the asset class, or do you think that there's value in people not having that historical context? I mean, I'm biased, but... All right, so what do you think? I mean, these are, these are public instruments, and they trade every day. Yep. And I wake up every morning, and I can buy or sell my entire universe every day. And not being involved in a specific name on the long or the short side is in and of itself a decision, right? That's a position to not be involved. If I'm a tech guy, like if I'm like a tech bro out of the Bay Area, it's like a developer or whatever, like I, I have no understanding of that framework. What percentage of people trading crypto do you think have read The Intelligent Investor? <laughs> I don't know, man. Way less than 1%, right? Less than 1%? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. You know, maybe, I don't know, 1% maybe. And even, and even, and look, God bless those guys. Yep. Because they had the vision for this shit that I didn't have. Like I was there, I was like slanging long short energy equities when these guys were like all in this stuff. So like, I really appreciate that. Yep. And different skill set, different perspective. Yeah. And yep. same thing with the VC guys, right? Like I really appreciate that perspective as well too. But like the way VCs invest is you make 10 bets, seven of them go to zero. The eighth one breaks even. Ninth one, you make two or three times your money. The 10th one, you make 50 to hundred times your money. The best, the best VC firms in the world, they do like one and a half standard deviations better than that. Like the shitty VC firms do like one and a half standard deviations worse than that. But like that's VC math, right? And it takes three to 10 years for that cycle to play out. So just imagine the skill set that you get investing in that type of world versus investing like I wake up every morning, I can buy and sell my entire universe. And like, and, and you have data to analyze and you have data to drive decisions. Whereas a lot of the venture stuff, especially early stage, you're betting on people, you're using intuition, you're, you're going after a whole different set of criteria on a yes, no decision versus the right. kind of daily liquidity, data driven, you know, liquid market. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so that, that all feels, um, feels comfortable to me. And so I started looking around for how to think about crypto asset valuation and people like to use like total addressable markets, an easy one, right? Like gold's like seven and three quarters trillion dollars. So if Bitcoin gets half of that, it's like 775 billion. That's up like whatever, like five, five times from here or more. Yeah, from Bitcoin. Divided by yeah, how yeah, many yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 Yep. So like that feels like, okay, that's like kind of helpful. And then, and then people started realizing that um, network value should be a function of network activity mm-hmm. and, and like transactions per day, active wallet addresses, um, even things like community vibrancy metrics, which is what, you know, it's like uh, GitHub, yep. GitHub commits, GitHub stars, lines of code written, line, you know, net of lines deleted. People were looking at like Slack channel members for a while, Telegram members, that it's, it's way too easy to game that. Yep. I, and there's noise in all this stuff, which is like a big problem with it, right? Because it's not, again, back to like our quantum mental approach and trying to take in as many different sort of, you got to use all these different tools in the tool shed. So it's like, I can't go hang my hat on like, oh, I've got a strategy. I just wake up every morning and like, if there aren't any, if there weren't enough transactions on the Bitcoin network yesterday, I'm sure the Bitcoin, like it doesn't work like that, right? Yep. But it gives you something to, to try and help frame the overall mosaic approach to, to, to evaluation. 
Um, so here's a controversial thought for you. Uh, I'm biased because I come out of this world, but I actually think that a group of people who have the best skill set for uh, investing and trading in, in the crypto asset world is people who worked at uh, on growth teams at large technology companies because they're used to the multidisciplinary approach around statistics, psychology, user interface, community, growth, you know, all the network effects, all this stuff. And they, and they brought it together to drive growth of yeah. these assets. And yeah. so there was no price attached, right? So, so it was yeah. really hard to say, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, hey, our network value is X and here's yeah. our stock price. And there's none of that going on. But I think that the jump from that basic understanding to what price should do is really easy yeah. compared to somebody who doesn't have that that understanding from, from a ground Com uh, perspective. Completely agree. Glad you brought it up because I want to unpack that because like what, what your background is is um, a boots on the ground experience of of Metcalf's law, right? Which Absolutely. which people have have, have taken uh, Metcalf's and try to apply it to crypto asset yep. valuation a lot, and um, and there's some truth there, and there's also a lot of lies in there as well, right? But by taking that one principle and trying to apply it, yeah. Well, well, true true Metcalf's, which is which is the value of a telecommunications network is directly proportional to the square of the number of users. Yep. True modified Metcalf's has never been shown to accurately describe the value of anything. But in 2013, I don't know if you've read this paper or not, in 2013, uh, uh, some guys came out, I think Metcalf, him, Bob Metcalf himself was actually involved in this. They, they put out a paper, either 13 or 15, where they, they introduced this modified Metcalf uh, concept called the netoid function, okay. which is an S-curve shape, which makes total sense, right? Yep. Because it's gonna, you're going to like level out, right? Because like, if I've got five telephones in the world and you add a sixth telephone, the amount of value that went up is totally different than if I've got a billion telephones and I add the billion in first telephone. Totally different, right? Makes, makes, so it's this S-curve, netoid function. So, so, so this academic paper introduced the netoid function. And then, which instead of being true Metcalfs, it, it takes, um, it, it introduces this virality factor concept and then introduces like um, the percentage, it, it adjusts it for the percentage of users that have adopted relative to the total number of users that could adopt. And it, and it, and it introduces this S curve. And then they showed the netoid function to accurately fit the number of monthly active users on Facebook and Tencent to Facebook and Tencent's revenue growth. And that's dope. Dead on. Dead that's on. super dope, right? And you were obviously front yep. lines for that, right? Yep. And um, so, so, um, so then that got super interesting in terms of thinking about crypto asset valuation because that feels like crypto, yep. right? Totally well, feels well, like crypto. And part of it too is not just uh, where are we today in terms of what percentage of people are using something uh, compared to the amount of people who could use it, right? So kind of addressable market and actual users, but also uh, a lot of things that don't get talked about in crypto is like what's like the the uh, K coefficient, right? And, right. Th and things where like. Right. You know, every person who starts to use Bitcoin, how many other people can they bring into the system? It's really hard to quantify that. Today, hard. Right. And, hard. and so there's some level of virality there. Right. And, and uh, as much as I joke around on Twitter about like the virus is spreading, that's really where it came from. 100 percent. Right? Was this idea that if I tell you about Bitcoin and I tell three other friends, some percentage of you are going to say this is stupid. Some percentage are going to be like, I'm all in and I'm going to go be the next like crypto anarchist. Right. And some group says, I want to learn more. Right. Right. And, and so like what is that growth look like as more and more people learn this? And what we find is like, it really does capture the mental energy and attention of a whole demographic of people. It can't be stopped. You cannot kill this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the introduction of a crypto asset, wh wh what it does is it allows for 
network effect to take hold in a completely different way than you've ever experienced in any other kind of kind of um, instrument or anything like that before. Because in, in in traditional network effect, you've got you know which is you know simplistically any any technology that derives a significant portion of its value from 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 network effect. It's just the more people that come to it, the more the value goes up, right? Yep. And um, um, e- each additional user makes it, you know, X percentage more valuable as a network overall. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and it's an S curve, yep. right? And and you get to a point where uh, you hit critical mass, where there's a certain number of users, where in the network, where the the sort of average utility provided for uh, to each each user relative to the status quo becomes compelling, and then it takes off, right? And you hit that parabolic phase, and then it levels off, right? That it looks a lot like the netoid function. Yep. And but but and and so you have the bootstrapping phase problem with with everything that has uh, network effect and that's like how do i get to a million users 5 million users 20 million users where you get to that compelling utility for each user relative to the status quo and what the crypto asset does is it allows speculators to stand at t0 look out into the future and make a bet about what that utility may be one day if enough people come to the technology to use it and and by standing there at t0 and making a bet in the future they those speculators are able to receive financial utility to Today and that financial utility provided today makes up for the bootstrapping phase, and they literally pull a technology into existence via speculation. That is super revolutionary, dude. That was one of the big reasons I quit my job. When I understood how that worked, I was like, I gotta, I gotta. <laughs> I, that's you've never seen anything like that before ever. Yeah, the only the only analogy I can even think of, and it's completely different, is this idea of with uh, with Facebook. Um, so I, I forget the exact numbers. I'm gonna mess it up, but it was like you know you had to get ten friends in the first fourteen days. When you joined Facebook. And so what face, when Facebook realized this, what they saw was just getting a Facebook account, you had X percent chance to stay as a retained user over some period of time. If you got three friends in two days, what are X percent plus, you know, five mm-hmm. or whatever. And they eventually realized that, you know, let's call it 80% of all users. If they get 10 friends in 14 days, they're going to stay for, you know, a year or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And so they started to drive towards that metric. And so you join Facebook, you had no friends. They just inundate you, you know, give us all your contacts, yep. give us your email, right? Do you know this person? Do you know that suggestions, person? Connect. Suggestions, yeah. suggestions. I mean, just that there's over overwhelm you until you start connecting with people. The second you hit that 10 in 14 days, bam, they back off and let you enjoy Facebook because mm. they got you, right? The, mm. the data shows them that mm. the lock-in is there and, and that network is going to pull you along yeah. to be a user. I think that, you know, kind of social networks is very, very different than the technology we're talking about on the digital asset side. There's some comparisons right. or analogies, but the idea of on with money, right, or, or economic value, it's like everything that these social networks did, right, and, and we did for years on steroids on a global basis, yeah. right? And it's just, I, I think that's what's pulling so many of these great minds in. It's just, it's a whole new puzzle. It's a whole new game. It's global. And nobody has figured it out yet. Yeah. And the first groups to figure it out are going to not only personally profit, but they are going to create inflection points in the technology that are, are going to be groundbreaking. So so that's the thing that, that's actually, as a guy that was searching really hard for evaluation methodology, I got super fired up about a modified Metcalfs, read everything that's ever been written about it, talked to like professors and shit like that, yep. and, and um, started building my own frameworks around it. And the... I think the issue is that, um, and what really got me fired up is that the netoid function accurately representing monthly active user growth to revenue growth for Tencent and Facebook. That's what really, I was like, man, this could really be the answer. But the introduction of speculation, I think may make a modified Metcalf approach just not really work mm-hmm. because the, the speculative aspect of it introduces the reflexivity 
that we've seen. And that's a function of the velocity characteristics of speculators versus users. And like, that's a, I'm not, we can't, we don't yeah. have enough time to go into velocity. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll just say it's totally a massive thing in crypto. Every once in a while I run across people that say it's not a thing. They, they're literally wrong. Um, it's, it is totally a thing and it's in the velocity characteristics of the speculator, I think may get in the way of modified Metcalfs acting the way it would in a, in a, uh, like in a social network setting. Right. Because yep. like, I'm not, I'm not out there gambling with like my Facebook users. Right. Like that kind of thing. And, and, and so that's unfortunate. It's a different different but, use case. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. So, so let's talk about, uh, up till today, right? So uh, 2018, uh, we're, we're filming this in uh, September of 18. Let's talk about price action from yep. January 1st through 18, uh, September 18. We just saw 20,000 in Bitcoin right at the end of the year. Uh, and all of a sudden, we get this huge 70, 80, 90% drawdown uh, across digital assets. What's going on? Yeah, so it's a number of things. And um, it's kind of an aggregate. Like it's like it's like we're down whatever Bitcoin's down seventy percent off the high Ethereum's yep. down like eighty five percent off the high a lot of these tokens are down ninety plus percent off their highs um, how do we get there and it's really it's really an amalgamation of relatively I think kind of unrelated things that in aggregate sort of came to that um, one you had just a blow off top in late two thousand seventeen yeah price of Bitcoin went from fifty eight hundred to twenty k in thirty four days bro. 30, you, you mean that's not normal? Four <laughs> days, 5,800 to 20,000, right? And um, completely unsustainable. Um, I mean, pro probably one of the most epic price movements of any, the last 100 years? No, ever, in, in any instrument ever. Anything. Nuts. Ever. Yeah. And, um, and so you had to back a lot of that out. And, yep. and, and, and the price action got so drastically far out in front of its skis relative to where the tech was, right? Uh, top 100 aggregate market cap tapped out at like 830 billion, dude. 830 billion. It's wild. Wild. And- uh, I mean, Because that, what is that? That's like one eighth the size of the gold market? Yeah. Right, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give and, or take. And, and um, the tech's not even remotely close. Well, it's not even remotely close to being ready, right? <laughs> Nobody using any of this stuff for anything, right? Yep. So you had to back a lot of that out. And then you've had all these regulatory updates as well too. And the US has actually been- I would say less heavy handed than feared, but there's a lot of like regulatory things over and you know, if you got China banning all kinds of stuff, you've like India has been super heavy handed, right? Um, I mean, the US regulators, in my opinion, have probably been one of the best regulatory bodies across the globe dealing with this. If you told me in 2016, as all this was really starting to pick up steam, that we were going to be sitting in, you know, mid 2018, and they weren't going to have really clamped down on anything other than the people who like, egregiously violated a law around fraud, right. you know, market manipulation, uh, all that kind of stuff, I probably wouldn't have believed you, right? And, and so they've allowed a lot of things to go on that were part of their learning process, yeah. right? And really seeing, hey, w what do people want to do with this? How does innovation evolve? And, and I think that they don't get enough credit for that. But now they're getting to the point where they're saying, hey, we, we got to figure this stuff out. We got to get some rules out there so the uncertainty goes away. And now people can really start to build businesses right. in the United States. And they're not kind of just, you know, looking for the regulatory arbitrage internationally. Right. But, 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 but there's been enough sort of globally things happen from a regulatory perspective that it's been a net negative. The uncertainty, how these things are going to get treated, it's, it's been a net negative. It's weighed on, on prices. Um, lack of institutional grade infrastructure, 
totally a thing, right? Yep. Like there was the meme in like the back half of 2017 that like, oh, 2018, like all the institutional money is going to come in the space, right? Oh, it's all, they're all going to, it's like how, like literally how? Yep. Fidelity, you're going to go buy a hundred billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and like throw it on a treasure and like keep it in a filing cabinet. Abigail Johnson's office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like how, how are they literally going to do that? You don't have any of the, the, the major investment banks like, like can't handle custody. Yep. The firms that are handling custody aren't big enough to like take massive flows. Right. Like, I mean, we use big go for custody, but like if somebody was trying to do like a hundred billion in big go, like they can't handle no that. Way. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and also the institutions that are building it today, I, I really do think that they're looking at it as kind of like a commercial bank looks at a bank account. Right. So if I build custody, if I'm, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman, whoever, if I build custody and I get you to use my custody solution, now I can sell you all of my services, trading, et cetera, around that custody service. Yeah. It is the kind of the Trojan horse to customer stickiness. Right. And so I, I think that not only do they need to build it for themselves because that's what they're going to trust, that's what they're going to actually use, but then also from, it, it's a huge customer acquisition um, benefit. Yeah. Right. And, and so if, if they can build this stuff the way that they're talking about building it, it, it may be the saving grace, right? It may actually give them kind of a foothold into the market that allows them to, to, to really play as, as, as real players. Yeah, I mean, we'll get there. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, there's, they're throwing so many people and dollars and resources at, at solving all this infrastructure problem, dozens of projects trying to do it, right? Yep. So it'll get solved. It's just not here in 2018. So prices Absolutely. have been going down. And then like volatility killed the store value thesis in yep. the near term, right? There was that meme as well too, right? People thought we were just going to rock it up to like $50,000 BTC and then just hang out there and you're going to have like, voila, digital gold. Yep. But like anything that goes up 14X in a year and down 65% in a hundred days is not a store of value yet. People are speculating that maybe one day it will become a store of value, yep. but it's not yet. And then like in the meantime, as people are waking up to that, and like you're not going to buy a, big, a cup of coffee with Bitcoin anytime soon either, right? It just doesn't really make that much sense to do that. Well, and time horizons matter, right? So yeah. if, if you're saying, hey, I need a store of value for the next year, eh, probably not that attractive. Right? Right. Actually, not attractive at all. Right. If you're saying, hey, look, I, I want to store a high percentage of my net worth in this over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you look at it a little bit differently or your perspective changes on, you know, what is your belief of the future uh, store of value uh, properties? Correct. Yeah. And then, and so it's like... In the near term, BTC not really working as an SOV or an MOE. And then, so that's hurt prices year to date. And then, like, here come the stablecoin parade, too, right? <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, that's how we're going to buy a cup of coffee, a decentralized stablecoin. And it's not just shady tether either, right? And it's like... You think it's backed up? One to one to dollars? Uh, whatever. Like, the director of the FBI, like, said it was like, okay, I'm sure, I'm like, whatever happened in the past, like... So that's my, that's my whole thing is if at this point it's not, right, it just, I mean, absolute, you know, going back to your word fuckery, right? right. I mean, it, it, if people have been speculating on this for how long and then all of a sudden somebody goes to check today and it's not backed up, it's just complete stupidity. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, obviously with all the FUD around Tether, it's still like the, eight, the eighth largest crypto by market cap, like $3.3 billion in market cap in it or something like that. And so obviously there's a really strong need for something mm -hmm. like that. So, there, you know, all kinds of people are trying to solve that problem and you're getting it like it's like what do you got like Andreessen Horowitz is like throwing down hard on it, Bank Capital Ventures throwing down hard on it, like all these exchanges throwing down hard on it. And so 
I mean, what the biggest raise is probably uh, Nader and the basis yeah. guys, right? So they yeah. raised like 130 million or something yep. from the injuries and Spain's, et cetera, of the world. And then you've got on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Gemini kind of yeah. regulated dollar, you know, yeah. stable coin. Uh, they didn't raise any outside capital as far as I right. know, right? And so it's two very different approaches. One's an algorithmic central bank. The other is a, you know, we're going all in on the existing laws, regulations, yep. you know, Wall Street, et cetera. The, the scary part, is, or maybe not even scary, just the interesting part is both could win. They could coexist. Oh, yeah. Right? There's, yeah. No, there's no kind of binary one has to win, one has to lose, yeah. which makes it even more interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll see, we'll see how that plays out, right? But I, but I think that's the introduction of the concept of a decentralized stablecoin, I think, has hurt BTC prices year to date. Because, like, if you're a Venezuelan farmer, like, you know, you sold your life savings into BTC at, like, 19K, Right. Well, what you really wanted was like U.S. dollar. Like you really wanted like a stable coin that's like tied yep. to the U.S. dollar or, or whatever. And so um, so we'll see how that plays out. But it certainly hurt prices year to date. And then also you've had this this focus on um, valuation and specifically token structure and like token structure in the context of value capture. And like there was there was sort of a general thought in 2017 that like these ICOs, um, like if, if more people come to this technology, the price of the token is going to go up. And it's not that simple, right? And, um, you know, the vast, many, 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 many... It's also what every Ponzi scheme believes as well. Uh, right? <laughs> many, many, many of the, like, 16, 17, early 18 vintage ICOs, the token structure is fundamentally flawed in its ability to accrue value over the long term. Yep. And people didn't realize that then because nobody was talking about valuation. And what really happened, what really happened was, I think, was Chris Bernitsky wrote Crypto Assets, which yep. was, like, a year ago literally a year ago. He wrote that book. Top and probably a top five recommended book in the space yeah, already, right? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. If you're an introductory, you gotta read it. Yep. Yeah. Um and he and he threw out MV equals PQ. And the people got super fired up about MV equals PQ. And then like sixty days after they got really fired up, people were like, this doesn't work at all for A B C reasons, which were valid reasons. Yep. But what it did do was it shined a spotlight on the velocity problem. And people were like, ah, oh, there's this thing called velocity all else being equal, the faster a token spins to the ecosystem, the lower the price needs to be for that token to satisfy the economic demand of the ecosystem as a whole. And we don't, and like, it's not something you plug into a model. It's not, you don't, you don't use it like that, but you just know directionally if this thing, if people don't, if, if there's not a, if the mechanism design isn't such that people want to hold it or have to hold it or, you have to stake it where you can't you can't move it for a while or you know whatever reasons if there's a tendency to move it really fast it's going to have a hard time accruing value over the long term and that was kind of like year to date people have woken up to that and so you've just seen this big drain of market cap specifically out of you know btc dominance has been rising for four and a half months now you've gone from i think like 57 percent now yeah i think you've gone in a straight line from like 34 percent to like 58 percent or whatever over the last four and a half months the market's obviously telling you something there and um you know we when i think about when i think about like what's the bottom in this market gonna look like where, where are we? All right. So, so let's, that was year to date. Let, let's go, let, let's go outlook. Right. So, uh, are we at the bottom? And if not, where are we going? Yeah. So I like to look at, um, Novogratz called the bottom. He, he says that, uh, he says we hit the bottom uh, a week ago or so, or a couple of days ago. What do you think? Novogratz is a nice guy. No, no comment there. All right. 
<laughs> Shout out to David Namdar too. I like Namdar. I, I love Namdar. He, he's uh, he's one of the best. All right. So where are we going? So 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 on Coin Market Cap, I like looking at um, uh, top hundred aggregate market cap minus BTC. Okay. Which I call bottom ninety nine market cap. Yep. Um, that number peaked at, in the first week of January at $547 billion, which is a wild, that is an outlandishly high number when you think about That's it. That's like uh, 1 of the uh, of the gold market? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, it, for, by the way, 99 of those tokens, majority of the world couldn't name a single one of them. No, no. Right? Yep. Oh, oh, and nobody's using any of this shit for anything because it yep. sucks, right? Yep. And uh, there's 27 tokens that have 400 daily active wallets. <laughs> <laughs> Just saw that stat like a week ago. That's a wild stat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 27 tokens of 400 folks that care at all about this thing. And so, um, so that, so that, when, num- when moon, when moon, right. So that, so that number currently is 89 billion for the bottom 99. So it went from, we say 540 to Five, about 540 to, to 89, but, but 89 just takes you back to the first week in November. Yep. So shit was still super wild before then, right? Everybody, everybody remembers yeah, yeah, yeah. that, right? Like yep. summer, summer 2017 was still super wild. I mean, the, the, the barbers, the taxi drivers, they were all talking about it in first week of November. Yeah, exactly. And so, so if I just go back and look at where that number was, you know, for example, in on July 17th, that number was 36 billion. In the first week of September 15th, that number was 50 billion. Yep. So, so I kind of use that number to triangulate where, where a bottom might be because it's actually easier for me to think about what everything below Bitcoin should probably be worth. I mean, you're talking about a, you know, 50 to two thirds drawdown to go from here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, actually, I actually think there's a good chance. I'll put it this way. I think it would be healthy for the space for us to get cut in half again from here on the bottom 99 Yep. Like top hundred minus BTC. So then you look, so then you can, so then you triangulate that number, the bottom 99 with BTC dominance. And then I've got a chart that I've been looking at for months now where that, and then that backs you into what BTC price is going to be. What do you think? And so I, you know, we we won't hold it to you, but what what direction, where do you think we're going? You know, again, uh, technical analysis is like not the end all be all at all. Yep this would be like the first quintuple bottom in like the history of TA. Like that's not how TA works. Like, th- like a number doesn't get tested five times and then like it holds. It's just like not really how it works. So and, you and never we, know. What you're, t- what you're talking about here is, you know, let's call it the 5850. Yeah. 59, whatever it is. Right. Basically we're knocking at the door. We've knocked four times. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and if we kind of stay at, you know, the 6,500 number or whatever, and we go back down, is it the fifth, is it the sixth, the seventh? However many times we're going to knock at the door, eventually the door opens and we fall. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's going to be a function of getting dragged down by that bottom 99. Mm-hmm. When, when, when Arthur Hayes, the founder of BitMEX, introduced the Ethereum perpetual swap, he had a, bro- a blog post called Ethereum, the, the double-digit shit coin. <laughs> and Ethereum was trading at like, I don't know, like 400 or and three it, it, or three three something off a cliff to off what would it go down to one eighty one sixty one one sixty one on the bottom Jesus. And, and, they, and I mean you want to talk about a dead cat bounce that we've seen over the last couple of days like that's kind of the definition of a dead cat bounce we've gone from one sixty to like two fifteen two twenty yeah, right yeah and, and, uh, and now we're sitting right now there so like I think we do I think we do probably go see a hundred 
Yeah. On, and, and so, so you got 100, which, 100 Ethereum. And that, uh, and that puts you at 10 Bs. That puts you at 10 Bs for Ethereum. And then you start backing into like, okay, where's Ripple going to be? Ripple, like literally not a, like not a functional token, right? Yep. We all know that. Bitcoin Cash. By, like, by the way, the Ripple Army loves when people come on here and, and uh, talk really highly of, uh, of Ripple. Shout out to Ryan Selk. It's going on. <laughs> Lord, shit, dude. That was some wild stuff, man. I, lo- I love 2-Bit, man. Listen, here's why I respect the hell out of that guy is because uh, he doesn't just talk about it on a podcast. Mm-hmm. He says, listen, Brad Garlinghouse, where you at? Let's, let's, let's just talk about it. We'll film it. Let people decide what they want to decide after that. And so, you know, look, it, there's a non-zero chance he's right, non-zero chance that he's wrong. Yeah. I think he would be the first to admit that. I actually tend to think that the, the Ripple crew is, uh, is doing what they believe to be best, right? right. I, I don't think that they're, you know, out maliciously trying to, you know, screw well, people over or whatever. And so I'd love to see that conversation because I actually think that there would be points scored on both boards, yeah. right? So, 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 so as a... Like I'm agnostic in my views. Yeah, I don't, same, fall, same, same I don't fall in love with any of this shit and yep. I don't fall in hate with any of it either. Yep. And I think it's really hard to be short Ripple here because I think the senior folks at Ripple realize that their token, you don't need it for X Rapid. Yep. And they and now they know that the whole world knows that. Yep. And so at any time they could introduce new functionality on X Rapid where then you 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 need or like you, you like kind of you introduce this new concept where XRP like like there's some compelling reason for it to exist in the context of X rapid and that thing will hit the, that'll be the quickest five bagger you've ever seen in your life, dude. Totally. Yeah. Right. Well, well, and cause what you're talking about here is there's like price action and, and kind of, uh, you know, there's TA there, there's some of the fundamental stuff, whatever. And then there's just these wild cards in this market where the, the, uh, I don't even want to call it price manipulation as much as just like the ability to evolve the code and the, the, um, kind of structure around these tokens in a night and completely change the landscape right. is unseen in almost any other financial market in the world. Right. Right. You can't, if you're Facebook, you can't say, Hey, we had, you know, whatever, $400 billion market cap and we did, you know, 40 billion or, or whatever they're doing now in revenue and overnight. Oh, by the way, now we're doing a hundred billion. Right. Right. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. And so the, the difference here though is, you know, revenue isn't necessarily driving the token price. And so it could be literally how it's used. You change it overnight, bam, all of a sudden, completely different ball game, and we're going up, you know, 5X. Especially for a lot of these utility tokens, right, where people have realized that the initial token structure just doesn't accrue yep. value over the long term. And so the way, the way that at Ikigai, the way that we, like, break up the world is um, you kind of think about your, your Web 3.0 stack, but then I think about, and, and we consider the top 150 cryptos by market cap as our universe. That's the, those are the tokens we, we, that we collect data on, do analysis on, watch, everything. Yep. You have the tokens that are vying to be store of value. Bitcoin's obviously re- leading that. Um, I put Bitcoin Cash in that bucket. All the privacy tokens go in that bucket. Decred goes in that bucket. Um, and the, the the value the value framework that you put those is it's its own separate beast, right? Because it's like it's, it really is like that Austrian economics type of framework, right? Yeah. And it's like hard money versus soft, sound versus unsound, um, and and um, and and that's the kind of framework you put around store of value. And then then you have um, the platform level protocols. So like smart contract platforms, DAP platforms, payment rail platforms, like Ethereum, EOS, Stellar, Cardano, Qtum, Archain, Icon. I know I forgot some other ones in there, right? But you get the point, right? And and the, the value proposition for those, it, they're a function of the activity that happens on top of them, right? You yep. don't write any Ethereum smart contracts, Ethereum ain't worth anything, right? You don't, you, no payments going through Stellar, like it's not worth anything. And, um, and so you think about the value proposition for those as a function of like, how have they built the, the specific sort of way that they've, you talk about the scalability trilemma, right? Like, like, uh, like 
how many transactions can it do? How secure is it? How decentralized is it? Yep. Where do they set those levers to, uh, to be the best home possible for the type of activity they're trying to draw onto that network? And like the, the analogy that I use is like when you make your own character, like on NBA 2K, <laughs> right? Like if he, if he, if he's, if he's like got really good hops, like he may not play defense that well, or like if he's a great passer, like he probably doesn't dunk that well. Yeah, we're and not like, looking for all NBA offense or all NBA defense. We're looking just for all NBA. Right, and right? so, so you've got to set the levers yep. at a certain point to, to be attractive to, to, to that certain type of activity to come on top of it. So that's those valuation frameworks. Then you got utility tokens. Specifically within utility tokens, you got productive utility tokens and non-productive utility tokens. Productive utility tokens are like work tokens. And mm-hmm. that's like Augur and Numerare, where you can actually model those and you can model them in the same way that I used to do, like a DCF on like a like a like a uh, like a, a company like yeah, an yeah, equity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the the the, the valuation framework that you think about those actually kind of looks like like the real world. So it's easier to get your head around how to think about what those look like. Then that leaves you with non-productive utility tokens. Those are the ones we haven't figured out yet. And but what we do know, generally speaking, is that like MOE tokens. They don't accrue value over the long term. Like if you're just a Chuck E. Cheese token, like you know what I mean. Like you, yeah, can't, yeah. you can't put quarters in the in the video game, right? You got to take your five dollar bill, you put it in the machine, you get out Chuck E. Cheese tokens, put the Chuck E. Cheese tokens in the video game. But like when you're done playing Chuck, Chuck E. Cheese, like you don't want to hang around with the Chuck E. Cheese tokens. You give me my your quarters back, right? Yep. Do not accrue value over the long term. Be- That's a big problem for many of the 16, 17, early eighteen vintage ICOs. But but the problem is also this is like this is the whole thesis around inflationary monetary supply. Right. Is that actually what they're doing is they're trying to incentivize you to spend to to not hold on to the cash because it loses value every single year as inflation hits. Yeah. And so the deflationary model is the exact opposite. Right. And this whole idea of store value, blah, blah, whatever. But on the inflationary side, what we're seeing is the if we want you to spend, the price is artificially depressed because of the downward pressure. Right. Like 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 it is. Right. It, it is intentionally there because that's how the the, the structure becomes and so it's a it's a really bad speculative investment if you are trying to go long on the value of the token. Yeah. And 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 you know you can we can keep going as far as you know you can go really far down that in terms of like what do you need decentralization for yep. in that specific instance and like in many cases like don't tokenize. Like it's it's it, it's it's not a good idea for you. And yep. like um but 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 for utility tokens, non productive utility tokens, we haven't figured out how to make the token structure accrue value over the long term. And so, but at some point you're going to figure it out. I mean, the ecosystem will figure it yeah, out. Too many smart people. Yeah. And, and, and then I think you could see a situation where if you've got a compelling piece of technology or a use case that exists today and then, but the token structure doesn't work and it's out there, you know, down 95% year to date. If somebody goes and figures out the token structure in another token, you may see uh, just this massive swath of restructuring of token structures. And then they're like, oh, look, we fixed it and it works better now. You know, like come use our technology. It's, it's hard to say how, how all that stuff's going to play out. But That's really scary. If you're long or short, you don't know what's coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's really, really it's hard. hard to make money on the short side in this space. Absolutely. Um, all right. So l- let's do a rapid fire here. Um, what do you think is the most controversial thing you believe in crypto, right? So like something you believe to be true that you think a very high degree of other people would disagree with you on? Um, the bottom 99 is probably going to get cut in half from here you think before so? we bottom. Yep. And, and Bitcoin, the relationship to Bitcoin there is you think it's getting dragged down 50% as well? or, or No, no? it's going to okay. hang in. Be- it's going to hang in better. Though it, I mean, 
it's really, it's really, really hard to say. I'll just say that in that scenario, it's hard for me to imagine that 5850 holds as the low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that's fair. Um, I think there's a lot of people who disagree with you, right? Because right. so here's the other part of the, this whole idea around like price action and, and, you know, where's the bottom, all the stuff that people are talking about. Uh, I've never seen a market where there was bull bear, you know, kind of cycle that turned over and people still remembered the bull market and you hit the bottom. Right. Right. Like from a psychological standpoint, if you go on Twitter right now, people literally think we're going to 20, 30, 40, $50,000 by the end of the year. Yeah. Right. And it's just, I, I can't believe that, you know, there's no blood in the street and we're going to turn it around. Yeah. Right. And, and so like I, I came out and I said this and people all freaked out, you know, oh, you're like switching your, your mentality around all this. And, and I was like, we, there's just not enough pain yet. Right. Yeah. And, and when the pain gets really, really bad, I mean, people are going to walk away. They're right. going to say this is over. Right. That's when I think, you know, we, we are at least near the bottom. But, but we really haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I mean, I was an energy investor for seven years. <laughs> right. Like I've seen some major league chop in markets before. And like if, if what we just had was the bottom, I'm going to have to rewrite my understanding of what bottoms look like. Like I'm just being honest, man. Yep. I'm so willing to be wrong. And I'll, just, I'll text you when that happens. I'll text you. I'll be like, I think I might have been wrong. Yep, I'll text you, and then you can tweet it out to like the millions, the millions of pop fanboys. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, all right, so what do you think is the most interesting or important company in crypto other than what you're working on? Um, I love the rapid fire. It gets the pauses and answers every time. I'm not going to name anybody specifically. Okay. I'm going to say anyone working on mechanism design and, Any- to- and token structure anybody like it's like i know some i got like some buddies uh in token foundry yep the consensus and like consensus is like it's kind of a mess right and everybody knows that but like i got some guys in there they're like crazy smart shout out rocco you know rocco <laughs> yeah. rocco's the man dude rocco's <laughs> right and and like anybody doing that kind of work digging deep on like where's the video game designers at man where are those guys at how are you not in this space yep right where's my where's my harvard phd mechanism design guy Dude, like, I'm telling you, this, right is, this is the, listen, it, it, I keep going back to this idea of, so the people who worked on growth, it was the badges, it was the streaks, it was the, you know, uh, all of the points and, and tokens and all this crazy stuff that people have been doing for years are now tied to a value that can be traded. It is all of that design on steroids. 100%. Oh, oh by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to retract my, so my most controversial thing. Okay. FOMO 3D, one of the best things that ever happened in crypto. You got to explain Again, complete scam. Literally a Ponzi scheme. The the regulatory little the little drop down, like when you click through it on like the regulations, it takes you directly to the SEC's website for definition of Ponzi scheme. It's like the the website's called ExitScam.com. Yeah, yeah. Um, two months before I heard about FOMO 3D, we were talking internally about how we're going to figure out this this token structure problem for yep. non productive utility tokens. And I said, I was like, when we get it figured out, it's going to look like this gimmick and it's going to look like this little, like this little thing. And when people see it, they're going to be like, that's bullshit, but but it's going to work. And people are going to be like, wait, is that, is that like a, like that shouldn't work, but it's going to work anyways. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the next thing, you know, it's going to skyrocket some token to a hundred billion because it had that that hook for mechanism design to like lock in that virality into economically juice network effect in a, in a way that accrues value over the long term. FOMO 3D, again, 
not supporting it, but I'm saying that concept abstracted into part of a utility tokens design could very well end up being the key that unlocks the, the value accrual. The people who figured out growth hacking for the centralized internet, one. One. The people who figure out growth hacking in the decentralized world will win by magnitudes more. Fact. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just going to be it's going to be fascinating. Um, all right. So you've got a magic wand. You can wave it, change one regulation. What do you change? We're not doing this with the Howie test. You're doing it with something else. Okay. Oh, so on the security side. Yeah. Right? So not the accreditation, but actually on the security side. Yep. What, what do you think uh, needs to get put in there that... Like what? Like what does the the new one look like? What are some of the components that aren't there that maybe you think should be there? Um, or, or are we too early? We can't tell. I mean, you're just you're using you're using a piece of regulation that was it was judicial judicial precedent that was set. Nineteen thirty three established. I think it was. Uh, I don't remember, but I know it was about uh, orange trees, orange groves in Florida. Like, that's the law that we're going to use to govern magic internet money, about Florida orange groves. Like, that just doesn't make any sense, right? So if I could pull anything back, then you'd get a new law specifically about this. So, so it's, not, it's not getting rid of it completely. It's just saying, look, we need something new, yeah. right? So, so we still need a test. Yeah. It's just what it looks like. We, we need to figure it out, and probably yeah. the regulators have a bunch more opinions. And, and, and who like knows? Maybe they're going to end up, they're trying to, like, you know, shoehorn whatever like round round hole square peg this thing yeah, yeah, into yeah. making it work and that you know uh, uh what's his name hinman introduced the concept of like sufficient decentralization and they're like literally gonna just like try and layer that on top of a rule about florida orange trees <laughs> like sufficient decentralization okay all right L- listen is is the orchard decentralized or not <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i know uh, um all right so uh one non-crypto question uh Look, everyone loves aliens, right? Twitter goes nuts when I talk about all this alien stuff. And uh, uh, I recently had the thought of, uh, out of everything people have thought about on the alien side, do aliens have pets, right? So are there, you know, we always think of aliens as like this uh, equivalent to humans, right? They're going to, you know, have some level of intelligence. They're going to kind of look like us generally. They're going to kind of walk and talk and communicate and and do all this activity. But we never think about on on the animal side, right? So one animal aliens and then two is do they have pets they are they showing up with you know some sort of equivalent to dogs and cats or or what's going on there i just try and draw from like precedent transactions on this one and it's like i'm i look at chewbacca right (laughs) i'm like that was like basically like a really really dope pet right yeah i think right Yeah. yeah yeah did he have like sovereign rights chewbacca I don't know about that. I don't know. Anyways, like I'd take a Chewbacca right now. So I figured that if you're an alien, like that's probably how you're. That's what you're, roll, you're rolling yeah. up with a Chewbacca. <laughs> all right. I have not heard that answer yet. Um, all right. So I'll let everyone uh, to close it out. Uh, ask me one question. What, uh, what question you got? Ooh. Um, what's still, I feel like I hadn't caught up with you in a while. Like where, like what's Morgan Creek? Like what y'all's like, what's the next like six to 12 months look like for Morgan Creek? Uh, we are running around and banging our head against the wall to get every single institution off zero. Mm. So if you think of your, if you're an institution, you've got no exposure to, you know, what is the, probably the best performing asset class over the last five years. There's a bunch of data that shows if you take a 60, 40 global portfolio, put 1% of digital assets, uh, you get a anywhere between 150 to 300 basis point, you know, increase in returns, depending on when you did it. Uh, and you get a, a near identical, a standard deviation of risk. You get a double digit increase in sharp ratio. And we actually That's specifically uh, for BTC. Uh, the, it, digital assets is defined in a whole bunch of different ways. If, yeah. 
some people have done it, which is Bitcoin. Some people have done it top tens, top five, et cetera. It's, that's generally, or at least directionally, where, where it ends up. Um, our argument is that uh, if you are one of, let's take a pension fund, for example, you're going to have to do these future payouts. So you've got a future obligation to fund you know, all, all of your pension plan uh, recipients. Your actuary comes in and says, hey, you've got a 6 7 8% assumed rate of return. So in order for you to pay out in the future, you have to hit 6 7 8%, whatever your specific plan is. Most of them are unperform or underperforming that. And so if you look out over the next 10 years around stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, it's not going to get you there, right? Kind of with the traditional asset classes. And so by no means do I think you should go put 100% of your assets in digital. But what I do think that you should do is you should start to get some of the... Uh, digital asset exposure, because what it shows is not only does it keep the risk profile very similar, volatility, you know, everything is attractive there, but you start to drive a higher return, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that conversation is very, very different than like buy Bitcoin because it's going to be the global reserve currency, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's taking the uh, crypto ethos and argument and speaking in a language that the institutions understand. And, uh, you know, look, I'm new to the institutional world. And so obviously Morgan Creek's been a, a huge advantage in getting us in the room and having these conversations. And it helps to have, you know, folks like Mark Yusko, who's got this long track record to be one of the people saying this. And what I found is they're incredibly receptive. They're not as receptive to the Bitcoin's the new store of value, mm -hmm. digital gold, kind of what, what I would consider more of the qualitative arguments, the quantitative argument of you have to hit 7% in order to fulfill your future obligations. You're not going to do that with the current asset mm -hmm. classes. This is a semi-uncorrelated asset. And if you put some allocation here, we will get you closer. Yeah. It's just a data. It's a data argument, right? And, and so I think that we're making inroads there, and, and you know we'll announce a bunch of stuff over the next couple of weeks. But I, I think that for the next at least twelve months, I mean that that is the campaign. It is get off zero. I can't tell you what the right percentage is per portfolio. Maybe it's ten basis points, fifty, two hundred. But I, I don't know. You got to look at each one individually. What, what do you put them in? So, so we literally say to them, look, you got a whole bunch of different uh, capital pools. So you've got your equity, you've got your debt, real estate, fixed income, whatever it is. We're building a bunch of products that uh, allow them to pick and choose. Mm. So if you've got an equity bucket and you're only, you know, you got 10% of your allocation for equity, you're only 8% deployed. That means you got 200 basis points that you can actually go and buy some equity. So let, let's get some percentage of that into the equity bucket. Maybe you're fully deployed on the equity side. And so you've got a debt bucket and you've got some under uh, deployment there. Hey, let's make sure we've got a debt product. And so building different products, we actually think that uh, on the digital asset side, people are going to build portfolios. They're not going to go, you know, you, you never go 100% cash. You never go 100% into one real estate strategy, mm -hmm. right? And so they're going to build this very uh, multi-strategy approach or, or kind of portfolio construction in the digital world. Now, here's the, the counterintuitive piece of this, and, and I've thought a lot about it in, um, so take the US dollar, 19, you know, 70s, you know, and before, 100% paper notes right? Today, 92% of the supply is not paper notes, mm. right? So, so we've already had the digitization of a currency yep. over time. The US dollar is probably the first digital currency that majority of Americans have interacted with, mm -hmm. right? Because it's just 92%, right? And so if you look at that, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, the actual currencies are just another evolution of that. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at stocks, for example, used to be all paper, right? Then went to electronic trading. Today, if you invest in a private company, most people are actually digitally signing for the documents. They're receiving it through Carta, eShares, you know, AngelList, whatever. They have an electronic or a digital version of that stock certificate, right? And so the idea that you're going to have a token in your digital wallet is just another kind of evolution of that technology. Yeah. So what does that mean for like capital allocators? Well, Robinhood is actually a great example of somebody who has built 
asset management, capital allocation in a digital world. So it's targeted at digital natives. It's got a fee structure that looks very attractive. Uh, it allows you to buy these digital electronic public equities. And now they've added cryptocurrencies in there as well. Well, if all of a sudden tokenization of real estate becomes real, will they allow you just to hold your shares of real estate in the same hmm. wallet? Probably, yeah. Yeah. right? It's just it's just an evolution. And so, you know, when you start having that conversation with these institutional investors, I think that they, they're they generally like, my kid's telling me this, right? You know, my, my 20 to 30 year old son or daughter is pounding the table and saying, hey, this is real, I'm interested in this, whatever. That's a little ways away though from like, hey, here's a hundred million dollars, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so I think that's like next 12 months, we're gonna see a couple of those checks get laid down. And when they get laid down, I think the, the dam breaks and, and game on. Musical chairs. Yeah, for real. <laughs> All right, man, it's super fun. Thank yeah, you so much for it. spending the time uh, and, uh, and hopefully we'll get you on here again. Cheers. Thanks again to our sponsor, Block Estate. To check out their tokenized real estate fund, you can check out www.blockestate.com. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.